Dr. Benner, and this is the Shelbourne East Center podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Scott Bauman, and one of our first guests that's not a part of our office. Uh, Dr. Mark Haro is an orthopedic surgeon in Charleston, South Carolina. He's a friend of the Shelbourne East Center that has done some research uh, with our office with Dr. Shelbourne uh, in a past life when he was a medical student at, uh, at Indiana University and uh, did some work with Dr. Shelbourne, similar to what I did as, uh, as we're coming all the way up and through. So, Dr. Haro, thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we get started, just want to remind everybody they can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC Podcast. We're on YouTube if you get your podcast that way. You can also visit our SKC Podcast Facebook page or email us at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you want to support us and like what you've heard so far, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and leave us a comment for those that come behind you to tell, let them know uh, what you've been able to hear so far on the Show Warning Center podcast. So uh, Dr. Haro is with us tonight. Mark, uh, this study you did with Dr. Shelbourne was in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2007 uh, entitled Knee Dislocation with Lateral Side Injury, Results of an N-Mass Surgical Technique of the Lateral Side. And let's start out with just kind of setting the scene for our listeners of kind of what's out there. I know when I, uh, you know, you and I both trained at um, some some good places uh, with some with some really smart people that didn't do things exactly like I do now and the, uh, like Dr. Shelbourne and you did in this, uh, in this study. Um, so, you know, a lot of a lot's been made out there about reconstructive techniques, things like that. Um, so, what what what's out there about lateral side injuries when, when they're a part of multi ligament knee injuries? Yeah, yeah. Most of the studies, and it's kind of you know shifted over time, has gone more and more towards like the reconstruction side of things. You know, some early studies, you know, before we had done our paper, showed that you know leaving lateral side injuries alone or trying to repair lateral side injuries alone may not have you know turned out to have the best results. So I think there's mm-hmm. a big focus when we started getting better at knee ligament reconstructions to reconstruct everything. You know, so when I went to, you know, Virginia for my residency, we were we were reconstructing everything, the ACL, the PCL, the lateral side, the medial side, everything was getting reconstructed and it was thought to be, you know, potentially stronger and, and a lower chance of, you know, failure, but we were seeing, you know, reasonably high rates of stiffness. So I, I think that's kind of one of the biggest differences you know, with this technique that we used in the paper was, you know, allowing things that can heal on their own to heal on their own and things that can't heal on their own to be repaired and reconstructed kind of as, you know, as was appropriate. Yeah. So you trained at, uh, at rush for your fellowship as well. What were most of yeah. the guys doing there? I can tell you that, uh, I did, I did a knee fellowship at the insult Scott Kelly Institute, a lot more arthroplasty focused. I learned a lot yeah. more of what I know about, uh, sports medicine from Dr. Shelbourne at, at the Shelbourne knee center, but I also trained at the Campbell clinic with some good sports yeah. medicine surgeons down there and had a similar type of experience as you did on not really seeing the technique that we're going to eventually talk about here. So talk about what, uh, what the guys did, where you trained, uh, where you had your fellowship. Yeah, at fellowship, you know, it, we we were mostly still doing like posterior lateral corner reconstructions. I mean, that was kind of the you know the, the every once in a while be an isolated you know lateral collateral ligament reconstruction, but but typically they were coming as like multi ligament knee injuries where you know ACL was being reconstructed, the PCL was being reconstructed, and then we were doing a posterior lateral corner reconstruction as opposed to a repair. Sometimes we'd repair and augment, or we'd repair the lateral side with with suture anchors and then Mm -hmm. reconstruct the lateral collateral ligament. But it it was usually involved in some sort of reconstruction as opposed to a repair. And it seems like as time went by, there were more and more techniques that were popping up. Um, First, some some of them were more fibular head-based. And then uh, there were were so many graphs going so many directions that it, it became tough to keep track of from time to time. 
When you talk about those reconstructions, are you talking about those being done in one stage or were those ever staged into multiple procedures? Typically, when the ones I was involved in at that point were all done in one stage. You know, there have been a couple papers, and I know even one came out of you know, a, a systematic review and meta-analysis came out of UVA looking at the results of single versus, you know, multiple stage procedures, showing that the multiple stage procedures probably did as well and had lower rates of stiffness. But almost all the ones that I saw were uh, single stage procedures. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk just for our listeners um, that uh, that may not know as much about these injuries. Uh, kind of, how, how, what's the mechanism of injury for a lot of these that you that you've seen, and uh, what what should make you think uh, about this injury when you hear it from the patient as far as their history and presentation? Yeah, um, I, I think there's a little bit of a wide variety, and you know, even some of the papers that you know Dr. Shelmore has written has kind of gone through these, and maybe some terminologies kind of you know, been misused a little bit, mm-hmm. like velocity knee dislocations, like the low velocity, which is really what we're seeing is a lot of sports injuries. And they're kind of a typical awkward landing ACL mechanism, but they kind of land with a little bit of a, a varus moment. The, the leg goes in and you tear the ACL, you tear the PCL, and you tear the lateral side as part of like, you know, multi-ligament knee injury. You know, every once in a while you'll see someone with a direct hit, but that's maybe a little bit less common, um, I think, than maybe more the awkward landing. Other mechanisms are just trauma. When I was, you know, at the level one trauma center, we were still seeing, you know, high velocity trauma, motor vehicle accidents, falls from heights, falls from ladders, that type of thing. And then, uh, you know, the the newer terminology is the ultra low velocity knee dislocations or the spontaneous knee dislocations were that were, you know, seen in the like the morbidly obese. But, you know, the ligaments injuries are still the same. That, that study actually came out of the Campbell Clinic. Dr. Azar, one of my one of my mentors from fellowship, uh, was talking a lot about those ultra low velocity yeah. ones of people just stepping off the curb, dislocating yeah. their knee. And surprisingly, what was most interesting about those is that those patients were more likely to have neurovascular injuries, which you wouldn't yeah. think would be the case. I know in my yeah. hands, I see a lot of these from football injuries. I just did one literally today uh, where kid went into chasing the quarterback. Somebody cracked back on him, hit him in the front of the knee, but from the inside. And the and the, the the reason this is so, as you know, is that these are so uncomfortable common is people just don't get hit on the inside of the knee with a varus and posterior direct moment very often. It's much more common for people to get hit from the outside, have more of a valgus moment, end up with medial side knee dislocation. So I think that's what makes this difficult is just not many yeah. people see them very often. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I'll probably you know, see a handful of a year. And like the last one I did was uh, you know a month or two ago, and it was a uh, motorized uh, mountain biking accident. So it, it's just, you know, it, it yeah. varies, but you're right. It, it's not the typical mechanism that you see someone getting tackled and hit from the outside. So once you do get these patients in the office, what does that initial exam look like? And, and what does that initial treatment plan for someone with a lateral side injury? Um, when you get them in the office, hopefully they've already gone under a good examination because, you know, what we talked about a little bit before, there there is not a low risk of neurovascular injuries. It, it, they definitely happen. So, you know, every once in a while you will see someone with like a, a perineal nerve palsy or a nerve injury on the outside. But, um, you know, one, once that's kind of ruled out, we know that there's no neurovascular compromise. You know, it's really just a good physical exam. And, and oftentimes, Times they're they're not as swollen as you would necessarily think they would be in their knee because the capsule's kind of ripped off and their their calf is swollen and their you know their foot is kind of swollen. You'll see some you know bruising down on the outside of the lateral aspect of their calf on exam. I mean they have a clear you know ACL tear and then you know a varus exam you know a varus stress test and they open up pretty widely and it is it is fairly fairly common. Um, you know you'll see other tests like the dial test and then like you know 
posterior lateral rotatory instability test, kind of picking them up and see if they fall into hyperextension, kind of recurve bottom and a little bit of external rotation. And all of those kind of ind indicate that the, the lateral side structures are torn. But I, I, for me, it's just a, it's a good physical exam, looking at the varus stress and seeing if they're unstable or not unstable. Yeah, so much is made of what the MRI findings are going to be when yeah. you come to these multi-ligament knee injuries. And I just think that uh, it, uh, there's a lot of unknowns for the patient. These are often very significant injuries where the the, the patient or has felt the knee go way into hyperextension. Everybody's Everything's on video nowadays, so everybody's yeah. passing around on their phone. Look how, you know, the gross instability and how far into varus this this person's knee get. And these, these people obviously are very scared. They know they've had a really significant injury. In, in my hands, I feel like a good physical exam can make the make this diagnosis pretty quickly uh, and, and get people some information immediately to let them know, yes, you're, you're the outside of the ligaments on the outside are torn. I think your ACL is torn. I think your PCL is torn. This is a significant injury, but here's a plan of how we're going to take care of it versus I don't know what to do. Don't anybody touch the leg, put them in an immobilizer right. and get an, get an MRI as quickly as possible. Seems to be what sometimes I see in my office. And I, and I just think that for, you know, ATs that are listening or uh, sports medicine surgeons or even you know anybody who's covering sporting events uh, usually you can put the knee out straight push medial lateral and if everything at full extension is stable you're probably not dealing with a significant multi-ligament knee injury that's one of one of these really bad ones i thought the the point that you made about them not being really swollen for me is a, is a big thing if somebody says i felt like my whole knee came apart and it went way out to the outside and they don't have an effusion i'm starting to look down the calf to see if they have any swelling or ecchymoses down there that that it whether that capsular portion is torn off and kind of decompress that that bloody effusion down further into the leg, and uh, it's it's remarkable how not swollen these people are versus just a, just an isolated ACL tear, which uh, which is interesting. You mentioned neurologic evaluation, and I think that's a that's a really important one from the very beginning to to, to document from the very beginning just to make sure it doesn't progress, and and also before your surgery. Talk a little bit more about you mentioned the dial test and some other physical exam findings. For me, I'm a, I'm a little more uh, traditional when it comes to the physical exam. I think if you put them out at zero and they open up to varus, you put them at 30 and they open up even wider. That To me, that's made the diagnosis that there, there's a lateral soft tissue disruption. Um, but a lot of people talk about some of these more rotatory tests. Um, that, that, what do you, do you find those to be useful in, in your hands treating these injuries? Not really. Um, I probably do them a little bit out of habit and more just, you know, as an internal test, just to see if I, if one day they'll become overly useful to me I, mm -hmm. I really haven't seen that i agree the, the like a, a straight varus instability you know is probably more more way more useful i i want to know if they have posterior instability and varus instability and again i think you know as don has preached before like the, the combination of like a posterior and varus instability tends to lead to the posterior lateral instability as opposed to like mm -hmm. the posterior like rotatory instability. So I, I, I mean, I'll check the dial tests. I'll check, you know, some of these other tests, which again, I think they're harder to perform, especially on, yeah. you know, injured patients. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm still dropping the leg over the bed to try and do a various test. I think it's much more easy to do on someone who's had a significant knee injury. They relax a lot better than trying to hold the leg in the yeah. air at 30 and 90 degrees and crank on their, their tibia and external rotation. Um, if they tolerate it, I'll do it. But I, I don't think it has once yet changed my treatment plan. Yeah, I'm, w I'm with you there. Now, hearing you guys talk about the physical exam now, and take this question with a grain of salt, because this is coming from a physical therapist, and we typically don't see these as an initial evaluation early on after the injury. And Dr. Benner, you had mentioned that these are 
pretty significant injuries and, and has some, mm-hmm. and Dr. Har, you mentioned has some pretty gross instability. How do you handle that from an education standpoint early on? And what are you telling these patients? You know, obviously it's going to lead to a surgical case. Are you talking about that right away? Do you do anything to try to get them prepped in any way? Or what's that initial time point after that exam look like? So, I mean, for me, like, I think recognizing these things are probably the most important thing. I, a lot of times these get delayed or they're just thought of as a ACL tear. And I think really getting a good physical exam and knowing that there's a, a lateral side injury, knowing that, you know, maybe there's some neurovascular compromise, it, just alerting everybody to that right away is probably the most important thing because they definitely behave a lot differently, especially if you're going to use the the technique that we're going to talk about. There's a little bit of a time dependence on this. And so knowing about it is really important. And then, you know, making sure that, you know, that kind of gets passed along to other people that, hey, this is a significant knee injury. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, physical therapists, athletic trainers, whoever's taking care of these people should, should you know, be aware of that. Yeah, I can I can tell you from my experience that one of the things that we're fanatic, fanatical about at Shelbourne E Center is getting people in as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, that if if I have uh, more than a, more than a few days to wait to get into me, something's wrong. Especially if you're going to be taking care of acute knee injuries, and if you have a system in place that you're a busy surgeon, you're you're doing a lot of these, and people are referring a lot of these to you, and these end up getting into your office two, three, four weeks down the line, it makes your yeah. job so much more difficult. And I understand how that happens. Happens. Somebody goes to the athletic trainer, they go to the emergency department because they, they were told they had a very significant knee injury. They're put in a knee immobilizer. They're put on crutches. They're told, don't move your knee. Don't wait bare uh, and go see somebody. And uh, here's a referral to the doctor. And then maybe they call the doctor's office. They get in a week later and the doctor says, you know, this is a pretty significant knee injury. I don't know what to do about it. Let's get an MRI scan. So then you have to get through insurance. And then you got to get an MRI scan. And then you have to get the MRI scan read. Then it gets back in the doctor's hands and the doctor says, wow, this is a much more involved thing than I usually take care of. I want to refer you on to a sports medicine surgeon, especially in a small town. It may be 45 minutes away, an hour away before you get a surgeon that's willing to take something like this. And before yeah. you know it, all of a sudden the patient says, I've had my knee locked up in a brace for a month. I've been on crutches for a month. I've had an MRI scan. I've seen two orthopedic surgeons and I haven't gotten anywhere. And then on on our end, as people who take care of these complex multi-ligament injuries, now we're really behind the eight ball to get stuff moving quickly. And even if we do get moving quickly, sometimes there's only so much we can do, you know, if, if we if we get to these a lot later. So uh, that's something I can that I can stress upon our, our listeners here is to set up your office in a way where your, your front desk who or whoever is the first line of defense when they get a new phone call. Uh, when somebody says, I was told I told multiple things in my knee, that patient needs to be seen that day or the next day as soon as possible to get your hands on them as quickly as you can. Yeah, I've had several patients that astute physical therapists have picked up on exam and shot me a text message and say, hey, this guy was told he had a patellar dislocation, but he's got a drop foot. And when I do a various exam on him, it opens up like crazy. Yeah. What do I do? And it's like, send him now. You know, send him here. Now. Um, but it, it's definitely, I've had some very astute physical therapists pick up on this because they were sent for rehab for their patellar instability event. So after you see these patients initially and you're treating them that in that in that acute phase, you mentioned surgery. What, what's that look like from there? And how does that progress to a surgical case? And, and what's the technique you utilize when treating these lateral side repairs? Yeah, I mean, if we can especially get to these pretty early, and that usually means within the first three or four weeks or earlier the better, hopefully even earlier than that, uh, most of the time I'm repairing these, which is a little bit contrary to maybe, you know, some of the others in the uh, in the orthopedic world or in the literature. The surgical technique is called the end mass lateral side repair because 
you know, going back to the history of this, when you before we were reconstructing a lot of these, you'd open up the knee, you kind of go down to the lateral side of the knee to repair every little individual structure. And it was just a big scar ball. It was just a big, you know, the, the capsule was torn off, the lateral collateral ligament was torn off, the popliteus mm-hmm. was torn off, everything it had started to scar together in this big ball. And, you know, sewing that, taking them all apart and then sewing them back down ended up, you'd start with a big ball of scar tissue and it looked like you end up a big ball of scar tissue, but it would mm-hmm. be two hours later. And so, you know, looking at what caused the most stability afterwards was really reattaching the capsule and really just bringing everything kind of back down to the tibia. Um, so essentially connecting the femur to the tibia and what we do is we take some sutures and and pull that back down to the tibia, kind of roughen up the area a little bit just to get it to bleed, get rid of some of the scar tissue that's already started to form on the tibia, and essentially reattach it down to the tibia, predominantly the lateral capsule, with a with a staple, with a ligament staple, a spiked ligament staple to kind of hold that in there. And you know, immediately upon doing that, you can see in the OR it goes from like you know a huge varus stress to essentially back to normal. It, it's just you know the the amount of stability that just reattaching the capsule provides is actually kind of dramatic i don't know if that's what you're seeing too rodney yeah definitely and then, like i said just did one of these today and it's the the having having done these big reconstructions in the past and then had an opportunity to see dr shelborn do it now doing it myself i'm always just surprised at the simplicity that i think that that this technique offers you know as as you alluded to taking it all apart putting it all back together it all just kind of tears off as a sleeve and when you open these up especially acutely if you can get two of them sooner the better i don't know what you think i think we're probably set a week to 10 days at the most i want to be getting yeah. to these the dissection's almost already done for you you make the incision make an incision between the it band in the fibular head and you come down through the subcutaneous tissues you get down to the tibia and there it is i mean yeah. there's, there's not much to, not much to it and uh and, and and it always seems to be reproducibly just one big sleeve of tissue that you can pull down as a as a as a group and and, and staple back to the tibia so it, it's a really yeah. simple thing i did one today my tourniquet time was 20 minutes uh, if i told dr shelborne that he'd probably <laughs> ask me what took so long uh, because i've seen him do these in about 10 or 12 minutes but the the technique really is that simple and uh, and, and and really is that uh, reproducible. And you're right that the stability changes pretty pretty quickly. We're gonna have on our social media with this one a, a video of my case from today uh, with a before and after exam. Uh, so so check out our uh, check out our socials to find that. A lot of times, even just with the dissecting, it's almost once you get through the subcutaneous tissue, it's with a finger. You know, just you sweep down yep. there and you just feel that like the, the lateral tibial plateau has got a little bare spot and it just all lifts off as a finger. I've had a few situations though where the biceps femoris is off as well. And sometimes that nerve is sitting right on top of the biceps femoris. So that'd be the one caution I'd have about just bluntly going down quickly is that nerve can sometimes sit right on top of everything. But yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's just you open it up and there it is. Especially if you get to these early, which is why it's so yeah. much better to get to them early. I've done a couple yeah. of these at two or three weeks out. You open it up and you're like, okay, uh, this is, I'm yeah. not really seeing the, that fresh end that I'm used to seeing with these. Right. And you, you got to kind of, you know, you're poking around a little bit. And a lot of it is just blunt dissection until, yeah. you know, you kind of get down to that bare spot of the tibia, lift up a little bit. And then all of a yeah. sudden it kind of presents itself. But uh, it's, it's, it's a much easier dissection, a much easier repair if you get to get to this. And w- one technique that I've, that I find to make sure that I'm in the right, in the right place, once I see that end, try to undermine it all the way up so I can see the joint line. I can move the tibia into varus. 
and see yep. the joint line open up the articular cartilage and lift up that mass of lateral soft tissue and see the undersurface of the lateral meniscus. To me, exactly. uh, sometimes sometimes it is a little bit difficult to, especially in later ones, to know exactly where everything is. But once I find that free edge to lift all that up, dissect underneath until I can see the undersurface of the lateral meniscus, then I'm then I'm like, all right, now 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 I got what I need, and this is the stuff that needs to come down. Both of you had mentioned that it's a little easier when you see these in, in the acute phase, seven to 10 days or, or a little bit after that. Does it hit a point where it's too long and this approach no longer works or is it just more difficult? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. It's definitely more difficult. I mean, I've stretched this to four or five weeks, but the tissue quality goes down. The tissue starts to degrade. That that lump of scar tissue just becomes really a lump of scar tissue. And then you try and pull it down and put a staple in it. The tissue just doesn't hold that staple as well. You, I've even gotten some situation, I've used some suture anchors too to try and reinforce it. But yeah, I mean, after after four, five weeks, it becomes much more difficult. Yeah, I would echo that. I try to get to these within seven to 10 days. And yeah. I've started to do a really 100% of these in a staged fashion. When I get these injuries, <laughs> when I get these injuries, I pull, I try to get within to, to it within a week, pull the lateral capsule down, staple it down, and just be done for the day. I don't really do the ACL yeah. reconstruction right away. If there's a concomitant PT, PCL injury, we give that some time to heal as well, and then come back to fight another day after the patient's gotten all their range of motion back, after the swelling's gone down, after they're walking normally, et cetera to come back to the ACL reconstruction. But Mark, I don't know whether that's what you do or not. I know Dr. Yeah. Shelburne used to do a lot of these as a single stage where yeah. he would get to it within two weeks. But then we started, you know, backing off on that because I think we had some stiffness problems. So yeah. we don't do as many of these as one stage, but I know a lot of people do. Tell me about your experience. Yeah, I'm, I've am i gone the exact same route. I had a couple early on. I was trying to do them all, trying to be a hero, get it all done in one stage. And I had a couple people that just ended up a, just a little stiffer, just a little less than I like, less optimal than I like. So I've pretty much mm -hmm. gone to staging all these two. I can get it done quick. I can find OR time. I don't need like a long OR period. I can sneak them in the next day. I can just add it on and it's, you know, a, you know, 30 minute case type of thing. And, uh, I try and get to them right away. So I, I'm the exact same way. I, I repair it real quickly. I, you know, rehab them. Then I get the motion back and I get their swelling down. And then it's just a basic ACL. We're going back to like, you know, same normal ACL rehab protocols and I can do an accelerated, you know, a, a, a quicker rehab and not have to worry about overstressing the repair or anything along those lines. And patients yeah. much more mentally ready to do that ACL rehab at that point. That's part of a larger conversation around multi-ligament knee injuries that we can yeah. have later. But I think, I think trying to make things, try to convert a multi-ligament knee to a standard ACL reconstruction, in my opinion, is is one of the, one of the best ways to do it. I generally immobilize the medial side, get it to heal, and then it's a standard ACL. Repair the lateral side, rehab them. If a PCL needs to heal, give it time for that, and then it turns into a standard ACL again, as opposed to like you said, doing doing a big multi ligament case. So um, let's get back to uh, the the uh, reference that we talked about from the very beginning. This is a study from the American Journal of Sports Medicine from two two thousand seven uh, that Dr. Shelbourne and uh, Dr. Haro were were authors on, um, titled "Knee Dislocation." with lateral side injury results of an end mass surgical repair technique of the lateral side. So Mark, tell us a little bit about uh, how this study was done and uh, what the, what the methodology was. Yeah. So, I mean, Don was doing a lot of these and again, early on he was, you know, dissecting everything out and then he was switching over to doing, you know, this end mass repair and he'd been doing it for quite a while. And he was, you know, kind of hush hush about this. Cause he was like, well, that's not what everybody else is doing. 
which, you know, then then he was like, well, we need to report this because we're seeing results different from everybody else. So he had a reasonably large series at the time. And this is really before people were starting to look at this like as much in depth. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we had like 23 patients that he had done this on over a period of time that had, you know, at least, you know, you know, about five years follow up on. And so what we did is with this case series, we brought everybody back in. We brought them back in for for a physical exam. So we did, you know, a, just a good IKDC objective physical exam on everybody. You know, looking at ligament stability, looking at range of motion. You know, we did isokinetic strength testing. We did KT testing. We did, you know, stress radiographs, and we re-MRI'd everybody. So it was a fairly, you know, comprehensive look at this to see you know, what happened to this lateral side, what happened to the PCL, because that was, that is, and still is almost dogma, is that you should always have to reconstruct the PCL in these, you know, multi-ligament knee injuries. So we really wanted to prove or see, you know, how our results were stacking up with some of these big multi-ligament reconstructions, um, because what we were seeing was they weren't as bad as advertised. So after hearing that methodology and how that study came to be, can you talk a little bit about what you found and what the results were? Yeah. So um, after we brought all these patients back and did exams on them, we were a little bit surprised by a couple of things is one, you know, we really had hardly, you know, any with significant varus instability, you know, in, you know, 15, we got, we actually got about 17 of the 23 patients back in for an exam, a physical exam, and, and 15 of them had normal varus stability, which was, you know, impressive considering the literature said we had to reconstruct these to get that. And, you know, even at that time, when we were doing ACL reconstructions with this and leaving the posterior cruciate ligament alone. Only three of the 17 actually had one plus posterior laxity. So the PCL was healing, the lateral side was healing. And this was really confirmed by the varus stress radiographs. We had, you know, really a mean difference of 1.1 millimeters, you know, of varus stress under, you know, X-ray. And then when we re-MRI'd them, we saw that the lateral side was, you know, described typically as like a thickened, you know, mass as you would expect from this, but all healed down to the tibia. And the posterior cruciate ligament was healed in all of these as well. Um, so, you know, physical exams showed that they had good varus stability, they had good posterior stability. The ACL was typically done all at the same time in these. And, you know, subjectively, these patients were doing great. I mean, they had ID, IKDC scores of, you know, 91.3. And, like, they were all getting back to activity levels. And I and I interviewed and I saw every single one of these patients. And, you know, the only people that weren't getting back to the sports that they really wanted to do were the ones that just finished high school and went to college and decided, hey, I'm not going to play, you know, high-level competitive football anymore. One thing that's really not in the study, but like, you know, there's 23 subjects and there's we only got 21 with data on it. The other two were playing in the NFL at that time. So they're doing all right. Yeah, Yeah. they were doing okay. So I I, I even tried to track them down. I called their agents. I called everybody. But it was like in the summer. So we couldn't get them back because summer camp was starting. So, you know, I've heard some people say, well, what about those other two? And like, well, I know what those other two are. It's just they're not in the paper. (laughs) Those Those guys are doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, with these patients, did the rehab change at all? You, you know, you said these were done at the same stage at the, at the time. So you have an ACL with a lateral side injury that you're doing both at the same time. After the surgery, did that change from a rehab standpoint compared to somebody that just had an isolated ACL? Yeah, it slowed it down a little bit. I don't want to say it slowed it down a lot, but it slowed it down a little bit with a little bit less emphasis on regaining symmetric hyperextension immediately. Most were kept in a in a brace or immobilizer for that first week and really kind of kept locked out straight, except for when they were in a CPM, which, you know, was still using a CPM to kind of get them moving and still 
working on range of motion, um, but just going a little bit slower for that first week with, with regards to kind of weight bearing and really forcing the hyperextension and trying to allow that lateral side to heal a little bit. But once that kind of that phase was over, it kind of jumped right back almost into a normal ACL reconstruction after, you know, the first couple of weeks. But again, uh, you know, was, we didn't really see any stiffness in the studies, but I've seen some in my own patients. So I, I've changed that a little bit since we're staging these a little bit more. Um, but at that time, the, even doing that technique, we really were seeing pretty normal range of motion. Yeah, with most of these patients, as you know, Mark, there a lot of them have excessive hyperextension. They'll come yeah. in with five degrees of hyperextension on their normal knee and on their on their uh, on their multi ligament knee. They'll have. 10, 12, 15 degrees of hyperextension. Right. And it can be kind of striking the first time yeah. you push down on the thigh, pull up on the foot and you go, whoa, look at that. All right, I yeah. uh, won't do that anymore. Uh, once is probably <laughs> enough for that physical exam. So a lot of times when these patients have uh, extreme amount of hyperextension, I'll tell the therapist, like you talked about, don't don't heel prop them. Don't have them pull their knee into full hyperextension like we normally do for j just for the first week, maybe, maybe two weeks till you get yeah. them back for that first therapy visit. And if you get back for that first therapy visit and they're you know, they're zero, they're zero degrees versus, you know, five degrees on the other side, then start to gently work on the, on the hyperextension. Whereas usually with ACL reconstructions, we're having people pull their knee into full hyperextension immediately symmetric to the opposite side. We want to see that the day of surgery, the day after surgery, one week out, two weeks out and forever for these patients, we do at least say, you know what, let's just get your knee flat on the table and then let's measure it and see where it is. And when we measure it, if it gets to symmetric, that's good enough. That's what we want. Obviously, get that time. You give that capsule a little bit of time to rest uh, and not push them, push them back past it. Now, I have had that method end up slowing them down with extension before, where you know it's gone from let's not pull them into too much hyperextension to a couple weeks out there, a couple degrees shy of zero, and all of a sudden you're thinking, you know what? Actually, go do go ahead and start pulling on this a little bit. From an immobilization perspective, I really only immobilize these people until they have good leg control. And after that first couple of weeks, you know, I, I tell, let them let them fully weight bear immediately in a knee immobilizer. And the knee immobilizer is just is just there for a little bit of support. Once they can lift their leg, they can do a straight leg raise off the edge of the end of the bed in a nice controlled fashion. We're weaning them out of the brace very quickly. Yeah, I, yeah I, would, I would echo that from a from a PT standpoint. The long term lack of extension is something we really don't see with these patients. If they do lack a couple degrees early on, I usually chalk that up to the immobilization that they were going through right after the the repair, and then it usually comes right back. But long term knee extension yeah. loss is typically not something we see. I think Mark, we for, saw a little bit. It may have been a little bit more of an issue when we were doing everything at the same time. You know, I, I felt like we were compromising the ACL rehab for the sake of the lateral side rehab. And so I always felt like, oh, I want to go faster. I want to go faster from the ACL standpoint. But now that we've separated these a little bit, I have no qualms about not pulling them into hyperextension. They all get it back. And then, you know, once they get it back, we can turn around and do the ACL reconstruction. Is that a big part of why you're staging them now versus at the time the study was completed, or what are those reasons? Yeah, that's pretty much the reason why. I feel like I, I felt like we were we were not doing each ligament its you know most optimal rehab for the for the surgery mm -hmm. that it needed. You know, we need we wanted to repair these earlier. We wanted to you know get these to heal back down and not overstress that. But which is the exact opposite from like a hyperextension standpoint that we see with an ACL. So it was a little bit of competing interests. And for me, I started backing down on doing all at the same time. And I thought my results, like patients were coming back with a even more normal feeling knee and the ACL reconstruction, or both reconstructions ended up being, or the rehabilitations ended up being easier for them.
Is there any factors that you see in the initial evaluation or um, the structures that are torn that that you feel like maybe lead to a little bit worse of an outcome? Um, I think when we get to the biceps femoris, maybe a little bit um, as we kind of get further around the back. And then especially if we have a little a perineal nerve injury as well or neuropraxia, I think people people just don't move as quickly from that standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. They're you know, we can't perform some of the dynamic stuff. I have seen a couple where we've had the LCL, like everything rips off distally, but surprisingly the LCL comes off the femur. Um, and, and those ones end up a little bit looser. They end up like with one plus laxity versus the ones that end up completely normal. I haven't really changed what we've done, but I've had a couple just weird, unusual patterns like that, that, you know, maybe pause a little bit, but you know, I, have they done worse? I don't really think so. I think, you know, maybe the nerve injuries are the ones that yeah. you know, give the most pause. Yeah, I think the, the if if the IT bands involved, those people yeah. are really really loose. Yeah. <laughs> They're just yeah. really loose. Right. They're really really loose. If the IT band comes off, I do feel like those people have a little bit more residual laxity, and I, I kind of have a little bit more trouble dissecting back posterior of the fibular head, as you said, perineal nerve territories nearby. You don't want to cause a perineal nerve injury while trying to treat an injury that can lead to perineal nerve injuries. Right. Um, so I do try, I, I do uh, Dutch Shelbourne usually does it for those usually just pulls it all down. But if, if somebody yeah. does have an avulsion of, of, of the, uh, of those posterior soft tissues more off the fibular head, I will try to get something into those, like a suture anchor into the fibular yeah. head and try to try to tie something down. It's probably not great fixation and it may not even need to be done because a lot of times Don's not done it and, and not seen a, a problem with it. Yeah. Um, so I, I do try to get, sometimes I'll use two staples instead of one to try to get that yeah. stuff down. Sometimes I'll use a, uh, a, a suture anchor in the fibular head to try to tie some of that down. Uh, yeah. But uh, but I don't find those to, those posterior ones to necessarily do worse. I do feel like the ones that have the IT band involved, those do get a little bit, little bit more lax than the others. And like you said, may end up with a little bit of residual instability. We had a, the, the place that I learned that was we had a Purdue athlete that had a, a, a pretty bad looking lateral side injury, ACL lateral side injury, um, that Dr. Shelbourne did, did a repair that did include the IT band and he got back to plan and his, but, but he did have some residual lateral side laxity His ACL and PCL healed, or ACL reconstruction did well, PCL healed non-surgically, uh, but just had some lateral instability and it frustrated us because he got back and played was, was an NFL quality guy, got into a camp went out and did really well and balled out and, and was ready to be signed by, by an NFL team. And the team doc didn't pass him because he had residual lateral laxity, even though he's running, jumping, cutting, twisting, catching passes. And and it was, it was a frustration, but there, there was, there was no doubt that the doc wasn't wrong. There's no, there was no doubt that there was, that there was a residual lateral instability, but uh, you know, clearly he could play with it and it was functional for him, but that's a, a story for another day, I guess. So with the rare instance where patients do have a nerve injury with this with this type of injury, how do you handle that? And what have you seen from an outcome standpoint? I know as a PT, when I see these, I really kind of struggle, to be honest with you, in terms of educating the patient in terms of if it's going to come back, when it's going to come back and what that may look like from a from a time standpoint. So can either of you answer the question in terms of what the education is or what those outcomes look like for these patients? 
Yeah, I mean, especially with some of the the sports related injuries, they're still most commonly neuropraxias. I mean, they're they're nerve stretch injuries for the most part. And, you know, I think the data would probably show that probably at least 50 percent of these recover. I mean, they tend to recover on their own. It might take some time. I tell people it's going to take, you know, three to six months at times for it to come back and maybe even a full year to be as strong as you're going to be. But, you know, a lot of times within, you know, three months, we're starting to see it recover. We're starting to see some dorsiflexion, some some toe extension. but there's definitely people that don't recover this, and, and that's always been a big challenge. Are they going to need, you know, ankle foot orthoses? Are they going to need, you know, you know, other supportive shoe wear? Luckily, the foot and ankle guys have gotten pretty good. I don't know if you've had any experience with this yet, um, but like rerouting some tendons through the, you know, to to recreate dorsiflexion, I've seen, you know, I've seen some some pretty interesting stuff where people end up with like five slash five, you know ankle dorsiflexion um, mm-hmm. with like tendon transfer. So I tell people, even though you might have this foot trap, there, there are some better treatment options now, but yeah, it's a, it's a tough one to talk to patients about. And you tell me got to be patient. We, we yeah. can't stop the rest of the rehab. Um, but most of these are good. Majorities will recover. Yeah. For those patients, I'm really pushing on them. We got to make sure that you don't develop an Aquinas contracture. That's the big thing is if you can't, if you don't have ankle dorsiflexion, we got to get you into brace, even though if you hate to wear it, even if it's uncomfortable, even if you don't like dragging around or how it looks as a young person having to wear a brace for, for this problem, if you develop an Aquinas contracture, cause another problem while trying to make sure the other one heals, uh, then, then we're in trouble. That That's one place where I, I very rarely will I ever have, you know, I don't know a discussion that I I don't know if you're ever going to get back and play. Uh, I think the one case where I would start laying the groundwork with that with people that are trying to return to sport is somebody who has a lateral side injury and a foot drop. Um, that you you know you get the MRI scan, you can tell whether the nerve's avulsed or whether the nerve is whether it's just a stretch injury. Um, but that the, that's the one place where I'll start telling patients, you know what, it, the, if, if the if the foot drop doesn't go away in the long term, this is something that sometimes can even even end people's careers. So and try to be real with them about that from the beginning. So now we've talked about the initial exam for these patients, the initial treatment plan, the the repair, the reconstructions, and a little bit about the rehab. What are your guys' take-home points with this, whether it be the the overall you know treatment of lateral side injuries or touch on the paper? Just what, what would you like the, the surgeons and the therapists listening to, to know about these injuries? From my standpoint, it's recognition. It's just finding these early, getting to these earlier, knowing that you can do a repair early and have good surgical outcome and, you know, potentially avoid a big reconstruction and, and these patients do well. So I, I think that's my biggest take home point is do a good physical exam, identify these patients and get them taken care of quickly. Yeah, I would echo that and say just just for people to know, repair does work. It's published in this study and in our experience, it it does work. Uh, and the 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 data is kind of there to back it up that that the lateral side can heal uh, with being with surgical repair. The the other thing is just uh you know the 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 speed of the speed of um, evaluation, speed of management is important. But I would say don't be afraid to stage these. Don't be afraid to tell somebody. Unfortunately, I'm going to need to do two operations on you, even though we don't necessarily want to, because in the long-term avoiding bracing, avoiding weight-bearing restrictions, avoiding, um, you know, loss of range of motion, stiffness, orthofibrosis uh, is definitely worth the extra operation, uh, no doubt about it. Because as you know, if, if we end up with a lateral side repair or reconstruction that's not done promptly and you end up with it not healing well and developing some more chronic laxity, it's very difficult to change that once it's ha- once it's already happened. It's much easier to get to it early and, and keep it from happening by repairing it acutely. 
and then uh, and then by by staging and getting all the range of motion back and doing the ACL reconstruction on a more subacute or elective type basis and doing it the same way that you do all the time less variation from the norm leads to more normal outcomes in in, in our experience um, and avoidance of orthofibrosis so uh, don't be afraid to stage well that about wraps it up for this episode dr haro thank you so much we really appreciate your expertise and, and more importantly your time to go over this important topic and it went so well. We're, uh, join us next week where we talk with Dr. Haro again and looking at a, a different ACL topic. This one is going to be looking at an article titled Incidents of Subsequent Injury to Either Knee Within Five Years After ACL Reconstruction with Patellar Tendon Graft, an uh, article that he was author of for, in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2009. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC Podcast. If you get your podcasts on YouTube, we're there as well. Uh, you can visit the Shelbourne East Center uh, Podcast Facebook page, or you can email us at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. If you like the episodes that you've heard so far, please leave a comment and leave a rating for those that come behind you. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next week. <music>